0: section twenty four of a short history of france by mary duclos this librivox recording is in the public domain read by pamela Nagami. part three chapter five louis the sixteenth part two anger against a government which wasted the public fortunes of france rancour against an aristocracy which barred all the avenues to fortune save those of finance these were the sentiments with which the middle class greeted Segur's edict. They asked a fair field and no favour, an equal taxation for the men of every class. The common people had their own grievances. The working class was organised in guilds or corporations, the number of whose members was fixed and might not be exceeded. Even as today the Royal Academy in England, the Stock Exchange in France, And as the sons of the master workmen generally succeeded to their fathers in the exercise of their craft, it was difficult for an apprentice, born with no silver spoon in his mouth, to rise from the ranks. It was even hard enough to enter those ranks as an apprentice, for the number of apprentices was also fixed and formal. The workmen asked free access to their craft and the abolition of the guilds. But the farmers and peasants had most of all a pressing need of reform. They were more and more conscious that their life was little better than a state of servitude. The king's taxes and the parson's tithe ate up the profit of their harvests. They were compelled to labor for their landlord so many days in the month or year without pay, to lend them on all occasions their carts and horses, to offer them as a present certain portions of their crops and stock, to bake their own bread at a fixed tariff in the landlord's oven, to buy their own wine at his press, with other vexations which once had been conveniences or at least due reward for service rendered. What angered the peasant with a slow, sullen, dangerous ire was that he was beginning to perceive that in exchange no service was rendered his corvee and his redevance had been part of his rent and he paid the rent as well the money and goods he expended had been in exchange for military protection and the nobles no longer protected him were incapable of protecting him had no right to attempt it for the system of government had changed while his dues and debts alone remained unchanged in fact he was keeping up two distinct governments a feudal system which had long ceased to exist save in its abuses and a centralised monarchy no less oppressive for every hundred francs he gained he had to squeeze out fifty-three for the necessities of king and country another turn of the screw rung fourteen for the landlord's dues then the church came exacted another fourteen and left the poor man crushed with how much remaining for his rent, for his daily bread, and the nurture of his family. Wonderful thrift of France, there was still sometimes a sou in his stocking. But the fear of the fisk made him hide it like a crime, exaggerate even the appearance of his most real misery, lest the tax-gatherer should come and take also the one ewe lamb if the land was so exorbitantly taxed there was an excellent reason to account for it only the poor paid toll those alone who had nothing to spare supported the immense expense of state army law and church the thing appeared iniquitous to the conscience of the age and the first reform that tiers etat meant to exact was the abolition of the privileges of the nobles when arthur young travelled in france on the eve of the revolution he told the peasants as it were a fairy tale that we in england have a great number of taxes but the poor do not pay them they are laid on the rich and what is more we have in england a tax paid by the rich for the relief of the poor sure those poor people had never heard of such a topsy-turvy land most of the miseries of their distressful country sprang from the opposite system only the poor were required to pay who could not pay and the rich who wanted for nothing were in nothing mulked of their affluence thus since the reign of francois premier every year the king of france had spent more money than he received and had tried to annul the deficit by heaping a further burden on the poor peasants back that was already broken, by the accession of Louis. X, even a minister of finance could see that this process would yield nothing further. Louis had had some of the best ministers and some of the worst in French history. He had begun with a man of genius. His name was Turgot. Il n'y a que Monsieur Turgot et moi qui aimons le peuple," said the king. Only Turgot and I really care about the people turgot had attacked the sacrosanct system of the noble's privileges and had begun by abolishing the corvee, the forced labour of peasants he was a free trader and had attempted to reform the corn laws but great was the ire of the lords and landed gentry and the weak louis against his will had abandoned his minister his successor necker the father of madame de stal a swiss banker of english origin had not the bold wide views of tuagot the reformer the first free trader but he was a wise financier a cautious economist a clear-headed painstaking administrator he had already found some sort of a clue in the chaos of french finance when some court cabal the court had no relish for economy and disliked necker for his bourgeois stiffness for his foreign origin and his protestantism again turned the king against the servant who might have saved him this time the finances of france were entrusted to a man of the world Monsieur de calonne who gave satisfaction to everybody with whom he came in contract his talent appeared prodigious the poor king owned that he had never been so tranquil his long confabulations with turgot and especially with necker had sometimes fatigued him but such was the facility of Monsieur de calonne that the maze of financial difficulties appeared illuminated no trouble in the present no anxiety in the future son travail avec le roi n'était qu'un jeu marmontel and the people at court were just as pleased as the king unlike that bear of a necker unlike the cold proud turgot Monsieur de colonne never refused to grant a favour or to do a kindness no wonder if he were the most popular man, if not in France, at any rate at Versailles. Unfortunately, when after four years in place Monsieur de Cologne looked carefully into his accounts, he found there was a deficit of a hundred and fifteen millions of francs. This was the verge of bankruptcy. Arthur Young, who was traveling in France that year, 1787, remarks how in every serious conversation that topic of a national bankruptcy would occur, with the further question, he puts it in italics, would a bankruptcy occasion a civil war and a total overthrow of the government? The king was obliged to recall Necker, but Necker was no magician, and though at the news of his return the French loan rose some thirty points, all he could do was to advise poor Louis, to convoke the states general that is to say to unite the members of the three orders of france nobility clergy and tiers état, in order to ask them to furnish forth the funds which must redeem the debt the states general had not met since sixteen fourteen since the majority of louis the thirteenth and the king knew well that they would not meet simply to find a way out of his financial difficulties They would insist upon reform, all sorts of reforms. They would exhume old abuses and make bad blood. The king himself was not so much opposed to a certain measure of enlightened reform, but his youngest brother, Arctois, he who was afterwards Charles X, and especially the queen, would be violently passionately against it. The king knew well that he would be asked, To abolish the privilege of the nobles and the clergy and partly from conviction and a sense of honour but partly also from what i dare hardly call the dread of a row with his wife the king did not mean to consent to any such abolishment the states-general met at versailles on the fifth of may seventeen eighty nine thanks to the influence of necker a double representation as it was called secured the tiers which stood for ninety-eight per cent of the nation as many deputies as the two other orders from the very first hour its superior ardor and energy were manifest those young men who had found no outlet for their powers in the army in diplomacy in the church were there in crowds there were eleven hundred deputies of the states-general and half of them belonged to the tiers etat there they were members of the state's general are spectators and encouragers of its proceedings. They with their wounded vanity, their relentless logic, their burning utopian dreams. Nothing is so dangerous as the logician who is also a dreamer. He may be Laclos, he may be Robespierre, he may be Bonaparte. In any case, he is sure to be an uncomfortable neighbor such silent and concentrated ambitions were not rare in seventeen eighty nine when success was a privilege of birth or royal favor when unprotected genius in a modest rank was frequently compelled to eat its heart out unremarked when the issues were closed in front of a proud spirit when humiliations were frequent and anger mute at last the floodgates were opened like the barons of our king john these young men asked of the king that which france had never possessed a written charter a constitution they demanded the suppression of privileges they decided that the states general should be called the national assembly that its members all equal should no longer be divided into orders they declared the equal rights of man born free admissible to all careers they maintained that no sealed letter of the king's could ravish from them this their own inherent freedom but only the judgment of the law they decreed the sovereignty of the people they pronounced the abolition of privileges and the equality of all men before the tax-gatherer the king should no longer demand a sum fixed at his own good pleasure it was the deputies of the national assembly who henceforth should decide what moneys they would vote and over the expenditure of these moneys, they would keep a right of control so far so good the king fretted and fumed to one of the royal proposals the duke of orleans objected that it was illegal legal enough since i wish it cried louis voicing in his pettish discontent the very principle of autocracy si c'est legal parce que je le veux he spoke of his divine right his good pleasure and his absolute power and then sank into his plump and smiling apathy ending invariably by granting what indeed he had no longer the power to refuse the national assembly was intoxicated with its own success admirable so long as it was occupied in framing a permanent constitution for the future it lacked discipline experience tradition would it show itself equally adequate to the crucial difficulties of the present? The assembly was now the sovereign of France. The king, though king in name, had lost all executive power. Can we blame Louis Sixteenth that he sought to evade this sad position of a fainéant king? He appealed to his troops to maintain his authority. In his horror of civil war he imagined that the foreign mercenaries, swiss and german which the government kept at its disposal would be less inflamed and angry than the french and doubtless also he thought that they would be less easily converted by the enthusiasts for liberty he summoned them all and soon round paris on all sides at charenton at saint-denis at courbois at sevres at la mouette on the champ de mars a complete wing of troops some twenty-five thousand strong, French and foreign, surrounded the capital. Paris lay in the midst of them like a beleaguered city. This move of the kings, or as the people supposed of the queens, and especially his appeal to the Germans, exasperated the Parisians. Bread was already cruelly short. Did the king mean by a set blockade, by the argument of fire and famine, to refute the rights of man? false rumours flared up like wildfire that the king and artois had a plot to poison the king young that the german dragoons were massacring the people in the tuileries gardens Marmontel, and the knowledge that the capital was unprovided with either food or firearms added the keen tip of fear to the popular anger on the morning of the twelfth of july paris learned and this time the news was true that the king had dismissed necker and all the liberal ministry a sombre wrath smouldered all day in the mind of the people that flared up at night on the boulevards into a great fierce blaze of indignation next day the mob attacked the hotel de ville and the invalides demanding arms if the king meant to fight they too would show him what paris could do in that line especially the public feeling incriminated the queen no doubt but paris imagined itself in the snare of a second catherine de medici the lion roared its wrath of her feminine treachery the people surged in the streets sleepless by day and night shouting arms and bread by a miracle the city which possessed no soldiers found in its every citizen a soldier equally able to obey or to command the sack of the arsenal and of the invalides supplied a certain insufficient quantity of arms and on the morning of the fourteenth of july ever memorable date henceforth the national holiday the people of paris dragging with them the cannons of the esplanade marched on the bastille the king's fortress the bulwark of the monarchy the immense frowning keep which for four hundred years had thrown the gloom and threat of its colossal shadow across the popular quarter of st antoine the bastille was part of the fortifications of paris but above all it was the state prison it was to paris what the tower was to london its eight vast towers with the cannon on their platforms seemed to menace the seething faubourg at its feet down dog crouch be quiet The governor of the Bastille had neither garrison, munitions, nor food to withstand a siege, and doubtless he feared to bombard the unruly capital. He had no orders to destroy Paris. And so, like a young lion in sport, in the course of a summer's day, Paris tore the great mass to pieces. By the end of the afternoon, the king had no Bastille. Today, the tranquil waters of the canal of Saint Martin cover its ruins when the duke of villancourt broke the news to the king at versailles c'est une révolte," said louis nay sire replied the duke it is not a revolt it is a revolution end of section twenty four